Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Romy Parzik, CEO of Vault, about tackling student debt from the private sector, also overcoming sexism and racism in her career, and how that's driven her mission personally and professionally. Welcome to The Indispensables. I am delighted to have Romy Parzik with us today. She's the CEO of Vault.co, the leading student loan benefits provider based in Austin, Texas. Romy's career has been dedicated to socially responsible financial services and fintech innovation. She has been an Aspen Institute First Movers Fellow since 2015. Uh, She has a degree from Carnegie Mellon University. She has an MBA from Duke's Fuqua School of Business. Romy Parzik, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, well, it's great to have you. And uh, uh, before I uh, ask you about Vault and your mission, let me ask you, uh, just tell, how does somebody get to be you? I mean, <laughs> what's your story? How did you get to where you are? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant. I was born in Peru and um, my father had the opportunity to come to the States when I was about a year old. And I think that immigration American dream story has a lot to do with who I am. I am also the firstborn, so I was really the first in my family to have to navigate a lot of the truly sort of American situations and experiences. And that, you know, experience growing up made me really scrappy and brave and gave me a lot of empathy for people that aren't starting at the same starting line as as others. So, you know, I found my way to Carnegie Mellon and really just that education was uh, amazing because even as a business major, we just were really forced to think really analytically and we had to take technical classes, you know, with, I had to take physics for engineers. I had to take programming for computer science majors. They really pushed you outside of um, sort of the normal boundaries of, you know, a uh, regular business education. And then a few years later, found myself at, at Duke as well. And why I chose Duke was because, um, you know, now it's kind of cool to say, oh, hey, I do socially impactful things as a business person. But when I went to school, you know, that was sort of, it was a new idea. It was a, you know, bleeding heart idea that you could align business and consumer success. And um, I was really drawn to Duke because it had the Center for Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship and um, really wanted to learn a lot about how could I take a business education and a, a business network and really leverage it in, you know, in my career to build something positive for the universe. And so, um, you know, since then have really focused uh, really in financial services and fintech. Um, how do you create responsible financial services that, you know, make money for the business? Uh, but also really provide exceptional outcomes for the users of those services. And so now I'm at Vault, and I've been at Vault since 2018. 
And uh, so where did you grow up? Uh, Mostly in Texas, so the Houston area. Okay, so and now you're in uh, uh, Austin, which is sort of the um, the super cool city of Texas, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of I left Texas as a teen to go to Carnegie Mellon and really didn't think I'd come back. Not because I don't like Texas. I just, you know, uh, kind of had adventurous heart and, and mind. Um, but ultimately, family drew me back to, to the state. So uh, did you try to make Pittsburgh weird or you just decided to wait to get back to Austin? Yeah, Yeah, I just waited to get back to Austin, saving (laughs) saving all my weirdness for Austin. Excellent. And uh, uh, and so and and did you spend time at the Aspen Institute? Yeah. So the Aspen Institute has a lot of really fascinating um, fellowship programs. The one I'm in is called the First Movers Fellowship. And it's for people who work in for-profit corporations that really want to do good things, like do good things for the earth, for people, for society. And um, in 2015, I was accepted into that program. Um, it's a sort of very rigorous vetting process, and you know you have to be nominated. And I was really uh, moved to be able to be part of it. And you spend a year; it's a year fellowship where you have three in-person residencies and you meet with all these other sort of global leaders that have the same types of aspirations for how business can be a force for change. And that, you know, that fellowship in particular has had a pretty outsized impact in how I view the world and in particular how I think the, the private sector can be really uh, leveraged for change in society. Um, so we're, we're, we're lining up your bona fides here and uh, uh, you are um, uh, obviously uh, have, have tremendous uh, credentials, but, but there are some missing years here. What, what, what did you do in between? Uh, you must have had some stops along the way. So I, in, at Carnegie Mellon, I spent a year abroad Um, I went to uh, France, the south of France, and, um, you know, really expanded my horizons, uh, probably traveled to sort of 25 countries during that time, which really helped me um, see the world differently. Obviously, I I mentioned that, you know, my background is I'm Latin American, um, but being exposed to um, a lot of things in Eastern and Western Europe was really important. eye-opening for me as a as a young person and in particular you know I was such a driven focused kid you know at Carnegie Mellon and um, France sort of opened my eyes to you know like there's more to life than just hard work all the time and in order to be able to you know run the, the the marathon of business life you have to be able to find some balance and I think that's a lot of what I learned when I was overseas. You know, but I've had really intense jobs from, you know, working on Wall Street. Uh, I was an investment banker for a summer in between my junior and senior year. And well, that was quite an experience. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I I just learned from that. uh, I learned a lot of great sort of tactical skills, but I also learned that that wasn't really, that was a little too far removed for me from what I wanted to accomplish from a mission perspective. Um, But I felt like I needed to try some of those things to know for myself that, you know, what path I wanted to be on. 
So I did investment banking consulting for a little while. Um, and ultimately, um, that led me to, to Duke because I wanted to take those business skills and then really transition them into a profession that allowed me to, you know, make some social change. Yeah. And, and Vault is really a mission-driven organization. Am I right? Yes. We're really fueled um, by the desire to help solve, you know, this multi-generational crisis that affects millions of our peers. And, you know, we know that every person that's taken out a loan, there's a dream behind that loan, right? There's a student that had a dream. And anything that we can do to empower employers to be part of the solution to tackle that $1.7 trillion affecting 45 million Americans, that's, that's what drives us day to day at Vault. So, uh, and I'm all about mission, but I also get goosebumps when I think about uh, $1.7 trillion in any context. Is, is Vault a, uh, a not-for-profit or is it a profit, uh, a for-profit enterprise that seeks to make a positive impact or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, it's the latter. So we're a VC-backed startup um, and we are for-profit. Uh, but, you know, our goals, like I said, are really to align the profitability of the business with the success of our clients and our users. And so uh, VCs, venture capitalists would be interested because there's $1.7 trillion involved, maybe. And, um, and, but explain how it works. Yeah. So um, really what we're trying to do is help employers recruit and retain the best talent. And that we believe employers can be part of the solution to tackle $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. I mean, I think nowadays, especially with the Biden administration and the, you know, the change of the guard in D.C., you're hearing a lot more about student loan borrowers and student loan forgiveness. And, you know, I think it's such an immense problem that we can't just rely on the government to sort of step in and fix it, right? I, I view it as a three-pronged approach. One, where borrowers get educated about what they're borrowing and how much they really need, and that they do their best to sort of optimize their loans and pay them down to the best of their ability. So that's, you know, one prong is the borrower, the individual. The second prong, obviously, is government. Um, there are, you know, uh, student loan forgiveness programs that could be revamped to be a lot better than they are now. But ultimately, I personally don't believe in, you know, a strategy where you just wipe out all student loans. Um, and so there's a third prong is employers, the private sector. You know, employers have mission and objectives they need to meet. And more and more, they need the best top talent and diverse talent in order to hit those mission and objectives. And so, you know, we're a tool to help bring those best people and keep those best people. Um, because behind 401ks and healthcare, the most abandoned benefit is student loan support. When you have 70% of four-year grads graduating with an average of $37,000 in student loan debt, you're going to have high demand for this type of benefit. And so what we do is help employers basically verify the employee's student loan debt and move money directly from the employers to the employee's student loan. Um, we have a variety of different products, but that, you know, that's the simplest one to, to explain. So the idea is that uh, the employer uh, has an attractive benefit to offer 
uh, to employees who have the the debt burden. Um, and uh, so you guys are sort of in the background. Is that right? Yes. I mean, the employees do know our brand and our name because they have to link their student loans to our platform. Um, but yes, we're, you know, hopefully if everything goes right, you, you know, it is in the background. We're just making the payments on the back end for you. And, um, you know, about 8% of American companies uh, do student loan repayment today. One thing that happened at the end of 2020 that's really interesting is um, for the sort of, it's called the Consolidated Appropriations Act, but, you know, in shorthand, it's basically the COVID relief programs that passed at the end of 2020. The government government made these type of payments from an employer to an employee student loan. They made them payments that are not included in the employee's taxable income. So they gave an advantage to the employer and the employee up to $52.50 a year. And so we're really bullish on what that's going to mean 2021 and beyond for employers taking this up. Um, we've seen estimates from, you know, organizations like the SHRM, which is um, an HR organization that says we could see up to one third of companies um, take on a benefit like this when there's that kind of tax advantage associated. And, and so the, the benefit to um, individuals uh, who are carrying uh, student loan debt is that uh, paying down the debt is facilitated in a more uh, efficient way, in a more economical way. Uh, is, that, is that the idea? Well, so you continue to make your payments, right? But now you have somebody else adding to the payments. So you're paying off faster and they're helping you reduce the time that it takes and the interest that you're paying. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of our one of our best customers is is based out of Nebraska. It's Nebraska Medicine, and they're you know a really large healthcare system, and they were having trouble, um, especially during coronavirus, supporting their frontline nurses, their bedside nurses, and so they put this benefit in place for these nurses. And they have seen um, really just since this year, a 50% increase in retention. So when you compare the sort of voluntary transitions of nurses that have the benefit versus those that don't, there's a 50% difference um, because this type of loan repayment assistance is so valued. Um, by their nurses. And that's something they really need, especially when they're tackling COVID, to have consistency in their workforce. Yeah. So this is, um, of course, uh, uh, healthcare workers, uh, more than probably any other STEM category of uh, highly educated uh, workers and um, who need specific credentials are in much greater demand than they are in supply. Mm -hmm. So here's an example of where uh, you're doing good on, on multiple levels, right? You're, you're helping um, a healthcare provider uh, retain uh, good talent, uh, uh, healthcare providers, nurses. Um, and you're also, uh, you're, the way you're doing that is by getting the employer involved uh, in helping the, the nurses uh, pay back their debt faster. Is that, that's the idea? Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the, on average, they knocked four to six years off of the time frame to pay off the student loans for these nurses. And I think just psychologically, so if you, obviously the economic impact and the return on investment is clear, but just psychologically, the idea that like 
my employer understands that this is an this is a burden and this is something that keeps me from having financial wellness and financial security and you know there's all sorts of studies about like when you are distracted by your finances or whatever else is going on in your home life you can't be fully a present at work you can't be as productive um, so those are harder things to measure in terms of like your presence and your productivity, but there's high correlations for financial stress and how that impacts your ability to show up at work every day. Yeah, this is uh, so. Uh, just uh, to to uh, put a fine point on it, how do you guys, so how do you guys make money? <laughs> Yeah, so we're a technology company. So we, you know, HR company, HR groups don't want to be involved in asking you where your student loans are or how much you have in student loan debt and checking that you're sure that, you know, the loan you told me to pay is actually your loan. You know, there's there's lots of different intricacies involved in actually managing a program like that. So we're we're the technology provider so that an employer just sort of plugs in a few parameters and tells us who's eligible for this benefit, and we run it all for them. And so they pay us a SaaS fee, software as a service fee, um, per user per month. And, and that's how we make money. And uh, and how many, so, okay, so you're the CEO, you've been in business now for what, going on three years? So I actually, I've been there since 2018. The company's been around since 2013. So um, I was brought in to sort of take the reins and take the company in a different direction. Gotcha. And and what was the direction uh, that you had to pivot from? Well, we really wanted to be able to scale faster. So um, previously, we were sort of going door to door, employer to employer, and we wanted to find channels that would help us distribute our product at a much faster clip. And so um, a lot of my experience has been in building big enterprise partnerships. And so um, since we came in, when we started, we only had a partnership with Prudential Financial. Now we have several partnerships, including, um, you know, Prudential, Boya Financial, John Hancock, and several other retirement companies. Retirement companies care about this because student loan debt is a huge obstacle for people having any money left at the end of their paycheck to put into their retirement savings. Right, right. And so... Are those financial services firm partners uh, also student loan providers, or are they really getting in more from the benefit side? Yeah, so they're looking at it from a whole financial wellness picture. So uh, for the partners I described, we work on their retirement side of their business. And so what they're looking at is the, they call the people that use their retirement plans, plan uh, participants. So they're looking at plan participants and saying, okay, what are the reasons that would keep a plan participant from putting money into their 401k? Because, you know, that's that's the goal of these companies, right? To increase the assets that are in the 401k um, funds. And so, you know, one of the primary reasons, if you just sort of look at a Venn diagram of who's not putting money in their 401k and who has student loan debt. There's high overlap in that Venn diagram of people with student loan debt um, because, you know, it is such a tremendous burden when you're coming out of college and you're starting off your life with $37,000 in debt. And, you know, for those people that don't really follow student loans closely, because they're dispersed semester by semester, 
the average person on our platform has eight to 10 student loans. So it's not sort of quote easy, like a mortgage where you have one loan, one interest rate, one servicer. You can have multiple servicers, multiple interest rates, and um, basically multiple line items. And you just, you're a young person suddenly with a portfolio of debt. And, and that can be pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. So if I'm, uh, if my employer um, signs up with you, uh, then I have your platform available to plug into. Is that the idea? Yes, exactly. And so, so what's the, the so, so what's your day to day like? Like, how many employees are at, at Vault, and and uh, you know what? How do you, you know, how do you uh, concentrate your energy every day? Well, you know, we're still, we're what's called a series A um, startup. And so, you know, we're, we've basically proven the concept that this works and it has traction. Um, But my main goal day to day is how to grow the business and how to grow it in the most efficient way possible. Because when you're venture backed, um, you you have to show growth um, between series A and series B and series B and series C. And you have to show that growth in a way that's really scalable. So now you're showing your investment banker uh, and consulting uh, background a little bit, right? Because uh, that must be part of what you're bringing to the table. I let's hope so. <laughs> that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, yeah, you know, in the funnel of of companies that make it to Series B and Series C, you know, that funnel gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the hurdles get higher and the challenges uh, get more pressing. So it'll be really interesting what the, you know, next two to three years look like. I'm personally really excited about some of the tax advantage news that has gone our way in recent months. And I think that will really help push the private sector to really become part of this conversation. And in particular around racial and gender debt divides, people of color and women are more likely to carry more debt and more likely to carry that debt much longer. And so with all the important conversations around diversity and Black Lives Matter, like we definitely believe that we can be part of helping companies address some of those inequities. So that's part of the mission. Absolutely. So, so it sounds like you're, um, uh, of course, you're an entrepreneur, you're involved in a venture-backed business as a CEO, uh, you're trying to grow this uh, business, it's, it's a technology business, uh, with, but with a real mission. And how, how important is mission uh, to you? I mean, uh, obviously, it's, Vault is mission-driven, but in terms of what drives you, it sounds like you were trying to get from wherever you were into a mission-driven uh, organization. Absolutely. You know, I actually can tell you the exact turning point in my life. Like I've, I've always had a strong empathy for sort of the underdog or, you know, the people that are rolling up their sleeves and doing everything they can to get ahead. But there's all these sort of structural inequities and structural issues that, that keep low to moderate income people from, from rising in the societal ranks, let's say. But for me, it was 9-11. I was living in Washington, D.C. when 9-11 happened. I was a newlywed, and um, my husband and I were you know, separated for the entire day trying to get back to each other. It was just a really 
traumatic, stressful day. And, you know, I really came out of that experience thinking to myself, okay, if something had happened, because I used to, in that time I was in consulting for the federal government and I was downtown a lot and I was in a lot of places that, you know, could have been targeted. And I thought if, if something would have happened to me, would I have been proud of the contribution that I was making day to day and that my life's work would have made a difference in society. And I felt at that time what I was doing wasn't quite where I needed to be it, to answer that question in a way that made me feel really confident about how I was spending my days. And so that was a real turning point for me. That's when I, I actually left my consulting job and started working for nonprofits for a few years to just kind of understand what the needs were in the community and how my skills could be applied in a nonprofit setting. And then ultimately, when I went to business school, I realized the structure of the company, like whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, you know, is less important to me than what the company actually does. So it could be for-profit, it could be nonprofit, it could be quasi-governmental, whatever. But as long as um, I'm truly aligned with the mission of what's happening in that, in that business, um, like since that point, I have never been able to do work in which I don't feel really passionate about the mission. And, um, and, and you point out that women and people of color are disproportionately impacted by the student loan crisis. Uh, how, how big of a part uh, of the mission uh, is that aspect or is that just sort of um, is that sort of the gravy or is, is that a huge part of the mission from your point of view? From my point of view, it's a huge part of the mission. So, you know, for for the racial and gender debt divide, there's really a confluence of events that happen. So first, you know, if if you're a person of color, you're you're more likely to not have intergenerational wealth. So what that means is when you go to college, you don't have a parent or a grandparent that's going to foot the bill for you. You know, even in 2019, the sort of median income for white families is about $188,000, but for black families, it's $24,000. You know, so you're already, if you manage to get into college, you're already starting with like very little cushion, right? And so you're coming out with more debt and then you're less likely to earn as much as a white counterpart over the course of your career you might have been more likely as a person of color to go to a for-profit college, which typically doesn't have the kind of return on investment in terms of, you know, your education paying off career-wise. So there's just this snowball effect that happens for people of color. And, you know, women hold actually between um, 58 to almost two-thirds of all outstanding student loan debt. So when we are tackling this head on, we are absolutely helping with racial and gender debt divide issues. And um, given that I'm a woman and a person of color, that's a really personal mission for me. Yeah, that's powerful. And uh, it sounds like uh, along the way, uh, you have uh, uh, been outspoken in various positions. And uh, you say you've taken some calculated risks to get to where you are. Um, can you say something about that? Have you run into that kind of um, uh, gender bias or bias uh, being a, a Latina executive? 
Unfortunately, yes, I have. Um, and anytime I've run into those types of issues, I've really tried to educate on the other side. And then I've also tried to learn something myself from the situation. You know, I had been working at a, at a global payments company for years and was really, quite honestly, a rising star. You know, every few years getting more people under me getting a, a larger PNL to manage, more and more responsibilities, just doing really, really well. And, you know, at a certain point, I hit the very first glass ceiling that I really felt I could not break. Like, and it was a very, very painful feeling when you sort of look around and you see, my goodness, I get the best marks, you know, from my employees and from my 360 reviews. I own the biggest part of this business. I have the most people reporting to me. What else could I possibly do to get to that next level, right? And it's just this really painful realization that it may be about something that I can't control. And so after sort of months of pushing my boss to have a conversation with me, I think I finally pushed him over the edge and you know, made him really tell me what he thought. And he told me three things that I will, they're sort of forever seared in, in my mind um, and not in a good way, but he told me three things. He said, you're too emotional and business is not emotional. Number two, you wear your ambition on your sleeve and nobody likes that. And number three, it seems like you have too much water cooler time. So, Bruce, to me, that's someone whose lens on the world and their lived experiences are so incompatible with my lens on the world and how I uh, view leadership. So to me, emotional means passion. And I'm not going to change that about myself. I'm really passionate and I'm not going to make an excuse for being passionate. And if you look at that as being too emotional, that's your problem. It's not mine. Yeah, I also think my experience, and I've only been doing this for 27 years, advising leaders and organizations of all shapes and sizes, but it is so rare that anyone would say that to a man, especially uh, in an executive role, especially with the kind of um, sphere of responsibility you were describing, with the kind of P&L you're describing, and with the kind of outcomes you're describing. Uh, that that would not come up, and um, uh, it it just it, it reeks of of um, uh, anti-feminism. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. Um, I certainly felt that way. And then you know, let me address the other two: ambition. Would would any man ever be, be slapped for having ambition? I, I just like I just was so gobsmacked by that. Like I was like, what? Like I. I can't be ambitious for the next level, especially if I've earned it. And then the last one, water cooler time, was extremely painful because I was, a, I am a very, very hard worker. And I believe that it's important to be well connected at every level of the organization. And I think what really got to him is I would know things through my network before he would know them. And so I would take them to him because I thought like, okay, as a leader, you should know X, Y, and Z is happening. And this person's unhappy because this happened. And, you know, I was bringing together these sort of 
less tangible aspects of just like the network of people that were working to move our business forward. And he really didn't like that. And I'll tell you how I reacted. It took everything that I had to not totally freak out, to be honest. But I just stood up and I said, thank you very much. I really appreciate your honesty. And I shook his hand and I decided that day that I was going to leave. And that's when I left to go to vault. Um, Because I think there's at some points in your career where you just have to understand that there is nothing you can do to change somebody's view of you when their view is so skewed in one direction. And quite frankly, that conversation was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because it it helped me just, it gave me that kick to just go on to what I really wanted to do, which is try some, try entrepreneurship, go out there and lead a company. It's, it's a great story and it's an important education because, um, you know, people need to understand um, that, that um, women still face this kind of bias uh, in the real, you know, um, one of the things I, I find um, when, when I interview young women who are in um, still in school um, that they, they're really not anticipating that they're going to find that uh, when, once they get to the workplace. And then often I'll interview young women who have been in the workplace for a short amount of time. That's still happening. And, um, and it's, it's a travesty. And, um, and, and, you know, to your point earlier about the, the power of, uh, retention tools for employers, um, you know, here they had a rising star, um, and, and, uh, they pushed you right out the door and, um, and into another, uh, organization. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, that can't be a fun story to tell. It's not. And it's interesting what you said about, um, you know, women not thinking they're going to uh, experience this because what I say is kind of adding the, the sort of racial lens to this. Um, you know, I'm a very light skinned Latina, you know, so and my name is not necessarily one you instantly uh, connect with being Hispanic. And so uh, in some ways that has been interesting for me because I'm sort of, can sort of be a chameleon, you know? And uh, this incident, I remember right afterwards, like that week, I had a lunch with a really good friend of mine, this really strong, outspoken Black woman that I immensely respect. And I told her this story, and she was very empathetic and so caring. But she said, oh, was that your first time? And it really, it really struck a chord with me because, you know, we had this very deep conversation about like, wow, you know, your first time came in your thirties. Whereas for me as a black woman, my first time came, you know, in my teens. And so, um, you know, there's just a lot to learn from situations like that. I think, especially if you can share them with other people, because one, you understand you're not alone. And two, it's a reminder of, you know, there's just certain things that uh, some people experience from the very beginning and have to overcome so early in their careers and maybe overcome over and over again. That's why I go back to some of the racial and gender debt divide issues, because if you have those things happening in the background and on top of that, you're carrying this debt load, 
Um, that's just a lot of burden for someone to, to carry in the business world. Yeah, I think that's true. And and I got to say, uh, you managed to extract some serious candor from this individual. Uh, um, and um, uh, that's no easy thing uh, to confront somebody that directly and get that kind of uh, clarity. Um, that's that's a talent. And uh, uh, maybe that's uh, that's part of your style. Uh, but um, how would you say uh, th that affects your communication style in general? Are you, do you have that kind of direct approach with people typically? Um, and and uh, how do you, how do you uh, go about uh, making people feel comfortable enough to confide in you when you're the one in a position of power? Now you're the CEO of a, uh, uh, of a, um, a financial technology company. Um, what's your approach to, uh, to, to extracting that kind of candor from people when, when you're the one with the power in the relationship. Yeah. So Bruce, I'm, um, I love to read sort of business self-help books. And a lot of times what I find is when I read them, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I do. It's like, I had this framework innately, but I never could sort of put a word or a matrix around what I was sort of innately doing. And so um, one of those examples is uh, the framework of radical candor. So I've always been someone who asks the hard questions, who views feedback as an act of compassionate leadership. And I can speak really mindfully about very hard topics. Um, and, and when I read this radical candor book, I was like, oh, this is what I do. And basically what it, it's a matrix of like, how sincere are you? How sincerely do you care about a person? And then how directly are you challenging them? And the quadrant you want to be in is where you're, you care very sincerely about the person and you are very directly telling them what they need to know. And so that has just always been how I behave and how I expect others to behave with me because I think it's, to me, it's a lack of, dis it's a lack of respect. If you can't just tell me what the issue is, tell me what the issue is. And so in order for me as the leader to be approachable, I have always been really transparent, uh, you know, and also, you know, in sort of the Brene Brown vernacular, I'm vulnerable with people. Like I have shared that story that I just shared with you with other people, because um, I think it's important for others to know that there are good and bad things that happen and you're not bulletproof. And, um, you know, when I've had to make hard decisions about in, you know, in the past, letting people go, I don't hide that that's a personally difficult decision. You know, I think it's important for people to know that there was true, sincere, emotion um, behind the business decision that had to be made. And so I try to be really open and about my own challenges. And, you know, I'm a mom of two kids and during the pandemic with a dog at home and a husband working from home, it has been really, really difficult. And I have a lot of working moms um, on my staff as well. And so I think it's important for them to know that, that I'm human and that I recognize and respect their humanity. And then they're more likely to come to me with issues and, and come to me with 
you know, direct feedback about what can be done better. Yeah, because because you're treating them with respect, both by extending your own vulnerability and and um, uh, being uh, candid in that way, but also uh, by uh, treating them as a whole person, by engaging with them, and and uh, uh, and and you're sort of uh, uh, calling upon them to be candid with you uh, in return. It seems like uh, that approach is is. Um, is, is a good way to build trust. Yeah. I mean, my leadership is very people centered, like people are, I I believe that managing them and understanding the whole of their experience is what builds trust. And they will trust you by what you say, what you do, by how you treat them. And, you know, it just comes, it's, it's just part of my broader, um, view on the world that I'm part of this sort of fabric of humanity and, um, you know, this collective unconscious and I need to treat people, you know, like there's dignity in the human experience and I need to treat people in that way. Yeah. Well, that's powerful. And, uh, and it builds trust and it, it, it does pay back, um, in how other people, uh, think of you and the reputation you have and the role you play in their heart and their mind and sort of, um, of course, you're the CEO, so uh, you wield authority, but, um, but it also makes people want to deliver for you. It makes people want to uh, give you their best. It makes people want to have your trust in return. Yeah, I've definitely found that to be the case. And you know what? And we have fun along the way. Like, that's what I tell my team is like, I want you to work hard and I want you to be the best that you can be. But ultimately, like we, you know, life is short and we have to have fun doing this. If, if you were to, to leave people with um, some words of career advice, uh, you said you have uh, children. I don't know if they're, uh, they're they must be too young to be uh, to be entering the workforce. Um, but let's say if you have young employees or, uh, if you're mentoring people, if, uh, you're, you're, uh, speaking to students at, at Fuqua, what do you have to say to them? What's your, what's your kind of elevators, uh, pitch on, uh, uh, how to succeed in, uh, in the world? Yeah. Well, you've, you've already heard my pitch on radical candor. That's, that's core to what I do. Um, I think boundaries are really important. And this is something, again, where I found uh, Brene Brown's work to really speak to, to something that I needed to hear. Um, this was not something I felt that I did well before. Um, I had really wanted to be a compassionate person. That's a really important sort of value that I hold. And she did research around compassionate people actually have the strongest boundaries because compassionate people ask for what they need they say no when they need to. They say yes when only when they mean it. And they are compassionate because their boundaries keep them out of resentment. And so I think that's just really, really powerful because I think a lot of times compassionate people think that you have to say yes to everything. And that actually ends up putting you in a place of resentment that's not productive. Yeah, it also puts you in a place where you're, you're, you, you're going to you might end up overpromising. Uh, you might have a good interaction in the moment, but then end up disappointing, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and that's sort of related to this, you know, other 
idea that I have that the things that make you really great, that make you sort of different from other people, when those things are unchecked, they actually can ruin you. <laughs> so, you know, if you have this incredible zest for life and it's completely unchecked um, and you don't have boundaries, that's, that's a really bad place to be. So um, boundaries are important. Um, decisions, um, because I'm a people-centered leader, I really believe in collaboration. But at the end of the day, everyone knows I'm the boss and I am decisive. So I take in a lot of input. I take in a lot of different ideas from all parts of an organization, but you've got to be decisive. And within decision-making, I have the mantra of I never make decisions, important ones, right? I never make important ones when I'm sad, tired, or hungry. And recently I've added, because of the isolation from COVID, I've added lonely. So try to avoid making important decisions when you're sad, tired, hungry, or lonely. Well, that, that is a gem of a piece of advice. And, uh, um, and you know, if you can have the kind of a vulnerability that you're describing and you can care about people, uh, in an authentic way, um, you know, sure those are emotions, but human beings have emotions. You're just honest about it. And, um, and, and to, be as open to the input that uh, that you gather uh, the way you're describing but also to have those breaks on um, when you're going to make an important decision i think that's fantastic advice and um and it also gives people so much more confidence in your decisions right when they when they know how you conduct yourself um i think that's fantastic advice i think the last thing i'd add is don't ever underestimate the value of asking good questions. Um, you know, as part of the First Movers Fellowship, we kind of joked that you have to ask why at least five to seven times to get to the core issue behind something. So really push, get into that next layer. Oh, we can't do that. Why? That regulation? Okay, tell me what that regulation says and why this doesn't fit within that. Okay, is there any way to you know, impact that regulation? Is there any way to change our product so that it aligns better with the regulation? Like ask the questions because I find that too many people sort of get the first no or get the first answer and sort of take that as gospel and they're not really asking why enough to understand what the core issue is. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice coda to your, uh, to your advice. And uh, all the way around, um, Thank you so much, Romy Parzik, for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Really enjoyed the time. In our next episode, I'll talk with my dear friend, the great naturopathic physician, Dr. Ginger Nash. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.